Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Krautrock edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm here as ever with Anna Shamansky and Hello. Jordan Weissman. Hey, everyone. And we are going to be talking about German economic policy because there was big news on the finance minister's front this week. We are going to be talking about Puerto Rico, which should have been making more headlines than it has been, but there is one particularly juicy little headline which got missed about um, how bondholders might be trying to help out and actually give some money, like a lot of money, to Puerto Rico, which would be very interesting. But before all of that, this is the most exciting edition of Slate Money you've heard in at least a week, because we have Justin Kalifowitz here. Justin, say hi. Hello. Um, yes, who are you? Introduce yourself. I'm the CEO of Downtown Music. We have a number of businesses, including a music publishing business that owns and manages song copyrights for clients like John Lennon, One Direction, Hans Zimmer. One Direction, oh my God. Zane. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> of course, that's the it's one a that unique choice. <laughs> you get excited about. Uh, we also operate a, a technology I platform. I mean, like some people get excited about John Lennon. I know, but I get excited about Zane. I mean, typical. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but, but, but basically, the, the, the short version of this is that Justin knows everything about the economics of music because this is actually how you make your living. Correct. And Anna found an amazing little story today or earlier this week about the owners of a whole bunch of M&M related income? Yes. So they have a stake in um, these two Bass brothers who receive M&M royalties. And so this company, Royalty Flow, now owns this stake. And so basically they, quote unquote, like discovered M&M before he was... The Bass brothers, before, before Dre discovered before him. Before yes. Dre discovered him. And so they own some massive percentage of his yes. royalties. And this current stake, I believe, is a, was about like five... How much was it last year? They said it was about five million dollars last right. year. So, so, so wait, just to so the first thing I, I need to ask um, Justin is: 
This is songwriting royalties, right? No. In this instance, the the brothers are apparently receiving income from the master, the sound recording, the piece that's actually owned by the record company. It doesn't apparently include any of the songwriting royalties themselves. Ah, okay. Which is interesting. There's a significant distinction between those two rights. So, so just the sound recording royalties are running $5 million a year from Eminem. The share that the Bass Brothers are, are so receiving. so so the total song so the total royalties from Eminem are more than that, and their share. Which do we know how much of a stake a share there it that didn't, is? Didn't indicate. No. What do, would you generally prefer to have if if you had to pick one? The songwriting royalty or the master the the royalty from the master. I'm a music publisher, so I, I always <laughs> defer to the, the song copyright. But the truth of the matter is that there is a significant distinction. The sound recording, you would only generate revenue from that particular recording and how it's exploited, right? So with Eminem copyrights, it would only be you know the Eminem's actual version of those songs, and the vast majority of the income would be through streaming uh, these days. With the song copyright, it's slightly different. You're entitled to radio performance royalties, film and television licensing fees, lyric usage. Um, when they create a cover version and put it in a little toy that you shake up and down, uh, there are literally thousands of unique income streams for song copyrights that don't exist for the master recording. Okay, so this is pretty okay. limited comparative. Correct. Okay, okay so, so, so we have this income stream, which is probably small by the t- t- grand standards of how much money Eminem is bringing in from all of these different sources. But it's still $5 million a year, which is not chump change. Right. And now the brothers are doing what? They are going to be engaging in a mini IPO. <laughs> <laughs> very mini. <laughs> a very mini IPO. So this is a Reg A plus filing, which essentially is an IPO where you can only raise up to $50 million, but you don't have to be an accredited investor to take part. So essentially, almost any investor can take part in this IPO. And and they're selling off a a small chunk, like 15% of that $5 million income stream. So my understanding is that the what they're doing is they're selling equity in, in a company. company exactly. Yeah, in a company, yeah. and the company's called Royalty Flow. And, right? and, the, and the sole and the asset income, of the co- yes. company is the income stream. Right now. Right. And, and, the, and so they're talking about eventually, uh, presumably adding more royalty streams eventually. But I mean, like, this is, this is down the line. They, this is what they're promising. And this is part of the problem with this is that most of this is down the line. Because again, this mini IPO does not mean that these shares will actually be listed in a way that you can trade them. Yeah, these are illiquid securities. It's not like this is going to be a stock on, that you can just go and you know trade on E-Trade in, or something. In theory, they're saying they're going to be listing it on NASDAQ at some point in the same sense that in theory, they're going to be um, purchasing more things than just M&Ms. Okay, but, yeah. but in practice, if you want to buy this stuff, what you're buying is essentially the amount of money that is generated by streaming Eminem songs. Like overwhelmingly this income stream is from streaming, which is correct. And and so just to give us a bit of background here, Justin, like this is a sort of weirdly unanticipated uptick in the music industry's financial fortunes, right? That everyone thought that everything was dying and then suddenly streaming revenues have become a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it certainly most impacted the the master recording, the record companies, um, and then anyone who participates in those royalties through producer arrangements or, or artist royalties and things of that nature. And this has really been a huge shift, right? So the CD business fell off a cliff. The record companies kind of all attached themselves to Apple and iTunes. And then 
downloads started to peter out and then all of a sudden you had Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, all these different streaming services around the world, local ones in different markets growing. And uh, it's really completely changed the fortunes of the business. It's also helped that you have Goldman Sachs and a handful of other entities out there putting out these reports saying that this is really only the beginning. We've barely scratched the surface. And if you think about it, 100 million paid streaming subscribers around the world is really just scratching the surface of the number of people who could pay for a monthly subscription. So theoretically, you know, you could reach, say, a billion paid streaming subscribers. They're paying say, $10 a month, that's $10 billion a month, that's $100 billion a year, that's real money. I mean, presumably, that's actually on a level with or even possibly greater than what people used to be making from CDs. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Goldman said that 2030, the music industry could be worth about $40 billion, yeah. as opposed to about $16 billion last year. Could and, be, but how down much, the line. How much was it worth, like, <laughs> at its height? I don't know the number offhand. But, yeah. like, but if this is $100 billion a year income stream then presumably yeah i think that 40 billion would be close if not more granted it's in the future so it's different but yeah i mean this would be significant if it all happens yeah Uh, and what they're looking at is if you look at you know where streaming took off first particularly in scandinavia you're seeing penetration rates 60 70 percent of households have a streaming subscription that we're not even you know, nearly there in the U.S. or or Canada or France or the U.K., Australia. We're not near there in those markets. And then there's all the emerging markets around the world that have never really monetized music before, at least not uh, in a legal way. Um, there used to be, you know, bootleg CDs were a huge business in, in emerging markets. And China's growing super fast. India's growing super fast. Um, you're seeing Africa in different markets in Africa growing, Nigeria particularly growing really fast. And these are markets that never participated in the the CD business. So you are getting money. I mean, like downtown music publishing is getting money from China and India and Nigeria in a way that like even big record labels never used to get in the past. Starting to. Yeah, starting to. This is my question, though. If in the past, a lot of these emerging economies were not purchasing music in the same way um, for a number of reasons. Why do we now think that they're going to be accepting this payment model in the future. Because you could Just, pirate CDs, but it's much harder to pirate Spotify. Yeah, right. absolutely. And it, plus it comes sort of like, in a lot of instances, it may not be a paid by consumer, but paid by advertisers or paid by the telcos. That's a huge, like in the US, this hasn't really taken off, but in a lot of other markets, the telcos subsidize um, music streaming. You know, move over to our platform, you get a year of streaming, you know, and they're paying the rights holders. You're also seeing significant investment by local entities into copyrights for the first time. And that's really what happened with China, right? Is you have these large local entities investing in music and music copyrights, and they want to create an economy locally around that. And the foreign music obviously comes in and is consumed as well. Uh, different markets have different percentages of foreign versus domestic, but you see the local economies really investing and, you know, large scale media companies wanting to make a lot of money off of music or film. And ultimately it creates the, uh, or strengthens the economy there. And it also puts um, more pressure on stronger copyright law, which didn't exist in a lot of these markets. And so if I'm excited about the future of streaming, and I think that people are going to be streaming Eminem songs in China for decades to come, I might want to get in on this offering and and then have a nice little check coming to me for, for years to come. Is Now, I mean, whenever Slate Money talks about these kind of weird illiquid offerings, we always just say, no, this is a scam, like run screaming. Is this a scam? Should we run screaming? 
it's been tried before. You, <laughs> um, I would say that you know many of the articles that I read on this this offering mention some others that have been tried in the past, and you hear about them, and then you kind of don't hear about them again. Um, so I, I'm not an expert on why they work or don't work, but it's certainly you know anything anytime something is completely brand new like this, there there are questions to ask, and I think there are fundamental questions about you know how music royalties are collected around the world that that investors should be concerned. There, there about. are two big um, issues here which I think investors might not be thinking about. The first one is who is managing this, right? Yeah, I mean obviously. The different platforms that are utilized to collect music royalties around the world um, vary dramatically. Uh, there are some that are super modern and were built over the past five or 10 years and can deal with streaming and understand how to audit all the income sources that come in. And there are some that are literally 100 years old, as old as copyright itself or music copyrights themselves uh, in the US and the UK. And you have to be wary about who who is actually controlling the flow of the income. And this is really significant, actually, because part of the issue with reg a plus filings is that they don't have nearly the disclosure requirements so as an investor you don't need to know as much and you don't receive as much information from the company so that suggests it may not be the wisest investment yeah so. and you and you certainly don't really understand the details of the special purpose vehicle which owns the shares and what can happen to that and and there's a bunch of like risk around the sort of legal structure which you're buying into which has nothing to do even with the music so and i i actually have a question for you um Wait, okay you need to you, you need to really specify who you is i said anna oh okay you can't hear me no no oh, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, i said anna oh did i for yeah. one did for once in my life did yeah, i speak okay. too quietly yeah so i i actually have a, a question for anna because in in the past when uh, companies have tried to securitize music royalties, it's tended to be a bond. The most famous example is the, the Bowie bond, where he basically took the royalties from his back catalog and made it into a security and, uh, you know, sold that off in like 1997. And anyway, there, there's a lot of mythology about that, that every once in a while that story comes back up. But other artists have done this in, in the past. I think Curtis Mayfield may have even at one point, or someone may have done that with his, uh, one, one of the sort of uh, kind of, Soul Legends has done it, but this again is not a bond. It's, right. It is an illiquid security. Yep. That's that's equity. How you know what are the differences, and, and is, does that make it more or less likely to actually work out for investors? I'm curious. Less yeah. likely. Less likely. So, okay. <laughs> when you're talking, if you look at those Bowie bonds again, if you held those till maturity, yeah, you did pretty well. Especially, and even if you sold them slightly earlier, you were earning an eight percent coupon. Which, granted, rates were higher then, but. That's not nothing. Whereas opposed to equity, you have no guaranteed income stream whatsoever. They don't have to pay out dividends. And there's no guarantee this is going to increase in value. And there's no guarantee they're going to list it in a way that you can easily trade it. That There's a, there's a reason that we consider bonds in general safe for investments because you do have guaranteed payments. Yeah. You so, don't have that in an equity. So this is sort of a riskier version of something that's been tried before and hasn't necessarily always worked out swimmingly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. There's also a challenge, you know, as you had, as Anna, you identified with respect to their ability to win new deals, right? And I think one of the things that people need to understand is that when companies in the music space negotiate to acquire rights, one of the most heavily negotiated part of the process is the NDA, 
to make sure that the information about those financials do not become public because well-known established artists do not want their royalty flows. They don't want people speculating or knowing anything about how much they're making. And obviously this upends that whole concept. Um, so I think, you know, getting folks over and, and convincing folks to use this platform to monetize their assets when they then have to publicly list how much they're worth might be, a, might be an issue. Okay. So now this is my, this is my opportunity to say, we have Justin Kalifowitz in the studio and he actually has seen behind these NDAs and he knows how much money people are making from these thousands of different income streams. And he is personally making money from these thousands of different income streams. And we are going to ask him about that. And we are going to do that in a little Sleep Plus segment after the show. So if you want to hear Justin Glivowitz talk about a bit more nerding out on how the music industry works, just go along to slate.com slash money plus, get your Slate Plus membership, and we will enlighten you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, let's let's talk about Puerto Rico because I'm. this is a subject I've been obsessed with ever since, like long before they declared bankruptcy. Partly because no one even knew that they could declare bankruptcy. It was kind of amazing that they even managed to do that. Well, Congress helped. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Quite a bit. And yet they are still under, they're still under various laws. The bankruptcy regime doesn't prevent them having to cough up a certain amount of money for every billion dollars that FEMA spends and that kind of stuff. There's a weird like FEMA matching protocol. And so here's the interesting thing. Like in, in the face of what seems to be incredible lethargy and I don't care from the White House about what's going on in Puerto Rico, which is a major humanitarian disaster. Guess who's stepping up is, well, or who claims to be stepping up is the bondholders well, of Prepper. They, right. Well, they got rejected. Yes. I, so, did, did you see the, did you see the follow-up, Felix? So wait, okay. So like, I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, a, I'm a bondholder and I'm saying, I mean, this seemed like, okay, for me, Felix, this seemed like quite a clever thing. What, Puerto Rico really needs is new money. And yet, what happened, Jordan? That Puerto Rico was offered a billion dollars and said no? Yeah. Yes. So, because- <laughs> okay, I'll, okay. Say, do you, I'll give it and then Anna, you, we'll, we'll tag team this. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, basically, uh, Puerto Rico's a disaster zone. <laughs> it's been devastated. It has no power. People don't have drinking water. And um, specifically, bondholders went to the power authority. Um, which is one of the entities that Prepa, Prepa, exactly that has that owes all this money because uh, the debts are spread around different parts of Puerto Rico. Seventeen and, different entities, exactly. Uh, it's almost impossible to keep track of all this. But uh, and they said we will give you a billion dollars in loans uh, if you um, if you essentially put us at the front 
of the line for getting paid back. It's a de- they were offering them what are called debtor in possession loans. And if they got if Prepa then took that billion dollars, um, they would get matching funds from FEMA. So theoretically, this could uh, lead to about nine billion dollars total. Um, Prepa looked at this deal and said. No, you're just trying to game the fucking system to get paid back earlier. This deal is not actually that great. Yeah, well, okay, exactly. So ex- no, this is this is really important because when you look at it on its face, you might think, oh, look, they're giving them new financing. Isn't that great? Yeah. No, that's not really what they're doing. So essentially, this is a type of dip financing referred to as a roll up, which is we can think of somewhat like an exchange, which is basically they're saying, we had this $1 billion liability that's now becoming an $850 million liability. So yes, we're accepting less money back as a a creditor, but we now have priority to all other debtors. Right, right. So this is, this is all, this is totally what I understood that in exchange for getting priority, they would throw in new cash. Are you saying they're not throwing in new cash? No, they are throwing in new cash, but the but the the way that this dip financing works is the way to think of it is it's like an exchange. So yes, they are giving them new cash now, but that what ends up actually happening and it would be like an exchange. So they would still owe money to the debtors, but now they owe a different type of money. So okay, essentially but, but okay, but all I'm saying is let's let's put the details of it to one side. I have this idea that this is a good deal for Prepper and for Puerto Rico because it is a billion dollars of new money. Now, I totally understand that this might be a bad deal for all of the other debtors of Prepper. I mean, all the other creditors of Prepper. It might be a bad deal for the shareholders of Prepper. But ultimately, I don't care what happens to those bondholders. What I care is that Puerto Rico gets as much new money as it can. Wait, this is... so this is actually like it's kind of important in terms of what's really happening here is that these bondholders had been trying to push through this deal previously, yes. which was a 15 percent haircut. These bonds had been trading in the 40s. That's a big difference. So now they're essentially taking advantage. The creditors are taking advantage of the situation and saying, oh, we'll give you new financing, but you have to accept the deal that you previously said you wouldn't accept and now we have priority. And not only that, as a holder of dip financing, we now can't be crammed down. We have way more power in a restructuring. So I just want to add to that point a little bit um, with a little bit of the backstory, which is that PREPA, the power authority, and the bondholders actually sort of were nearing a deal at one point. And then the uh, the financial advisory board that Congress created as part of this whole bankruptcy structure came and looked at it and was like, this is this is not going to work. <laughs> like, and yeah. that like shocked everybody because everyone assumed this financial advisory board basically existed to get the bondholders paid as much as I mean, like that was that was really the common assumption here. And they were like, this is we can't even abide by this. No. And so what they are pushing is, as far as I understand, was sort of a variation on that deal. It was like their piece of that deal. Essentially, they just wanted to jump in line to get it. Exactly. And I actually had to laugh a little bit when I saw that Natalia Yaresco is the head of the Puerto Rican advisory board, because Franklin Templeton is one of the main creditors. And I don't know if anyone else was following the Ukraine uh, debt restructuring as closely as I was, but there were adversaries then, they're adversaries again here. Who and are Franklin Templeton? Franklin Templeton and Natalia Yaresco, because she's the finance minister of Ukraine. She's an American who was made a right. Ukrainian citizen so she could become their finance minister. 
Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. And she's now the person that they're facing again. And in Ukraine, she got them to accept a 20% haircut and a maturity extension. So if she could do it once, she could yeah. maybe do it again. Granted, the Ukrainian people had to accept a lot of cuts, which the Puerto Ricans are, are going to probably as so, well. Okay, so in terms of fresh cash coming into Puerto Rico, because like I'm keeping my eyes on the prize here, which is Puerto Rico needs a lot of money to rebuild the island from the devastation of Hurricane Maria. Um, is my takeaway f- of, from this that because of some, you know, financial shenanigans, Puerto Rico will not be getting this fresh cash? I ha- find it very hard to believe that they aren't going to be able to get it in some other way. I have a really hard time believing that FEMA is going to be like, you know what? You can't put up cash. We're not doing anything. I think that they're going to be able to get it in another way where they won't have to prioritize one credit over another. I think we have to remember that the reason they rejected this deal in the first place because it, it just wasn't realistic long term. Like that was the idea. It was not sustainable. You were not going to be able to pay off these debts uh, and basically shoulder the burden onto Puerto Rican residents long term the way you would have had to. It, it just it, it, the math wasn't going it yep. was it was like kind of a it was the puerto rican version of one of those greek debt deals you know where extend and pretend extend and pretend exactly yes. like uh which we'll get to that in a bit but it's so yeah i think that trying to agreeing to that in order to get a fresh infusion of cash when it seems like there will probably have to be some sort of um rebuilding plan no matter what given right. the devastation that has taken place on this island uh, it just seems like a bad idea it's it's not something you do in in the heat of the moment Okay, on which note, I feel there's a natural segue to Greece. Greece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and when I say Greece, I mean Germany. Yeah, because well. because they're two sides of the same coin, really. Yeah. When someone Giannis Varoufakis is really or mad. like or really like two cars in a wreck, where Germany is like the Mack truck and Greece was the tiny little mini that just got the bad end of it. So mm. so yeah, so Giannis Varoufakis is is famous to Slate Money listeners as the one guest we who ever had who didn't turn up. Yeah, you. That, I am not surprised. Oh, we had an edition called the Giannis Varoufakis is not on Slate Money edition. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> He, we, he he did actually turn up at the studio when he had his book, yeah. Um, when he was on his book tour, but there wasn't someone to greet him at the door, and he got so annoyed about that that he threw all of his toys out of the pram and refused to come on the show. Got back on his motorcycle and just drove off all the way out. Yep. He needs he needs his VIP's treatment. This Yanis Varoufakis, Yanis um, Varoufakis's great opponent in the um, in the Greek restructuring wars was the legendary German finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble, yes. who has been in German politics for, I think, about 3,400 years. <laughs> I mean, like... Give or take. No one can remember a time before Schäuble. He, <laughs> he certainly looks like a vampire who's yes. lived that long. He, um, he is absolutely terrifying. He is the one person who can strike fear into the heart of Yanis Varoufakis or anyone else. Um, he, in many ways, is a much more important architect of Germany's economy and fiscal austerity or, or fiscal position and, and economic policy and post-war strength than Angela Merkel than um, virtually anyone else. I like, would argue that they tend to play good cop, bad cop. But, but he's the bad cop. Yes. And now he's leaving his post. Yes. He, is, he has been finance minister for a very long time. He, he was part of the um, force behind creating the European Union, the Euro... 
and reunification of Germany. Reunification of Germany. He has been around for all of it, and now he is he is taking on this role of Speaker of the House. Yeah, which is. A fascinating role because constitutionally it's an important role. I mean, constitutionally, president is an important role, and that's no no one can yeah. even name the German yeah, he's, president. He's technically se- second highest on the pecking order, but actually less powerful than the chancellor. Right? But this is the this is the fascinating thing. There's a actually a real reason why he is becoming Speaker of the House and giving up his position at the finance ministry, and that's the German elections. Yes, yes, because the AFD, the let's you know. Let's not mince words. The Nazis. The Nazis Nazis got 13% of the vote and 97 seats in the House. Yes, I mean, about 6 million Germans voted for them. Or I should, I want to point out, about 6 million German men. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying another example of maybe we should rethink this whole men voting thing. Disenfranchised men. You guys aren't very good at it. (laughs) Although Trump won white women. Anyway, the, um, the, there was this electoral earthquake in germany in a way that you might not notice if all you were looking at was oh angela merkel got re-elected yeah. and she did quite well and i guess nothing really changes it's like something a ha- may-esque result yeah although i'm gonna argue that it's not quite as extreme as some people in the news are making it out to be at the end of the day i don't think this is going to change things enormously no but the fact that there are nazis oh, in well, the yes, parliament in germany is like is important in a way that it wouldn't be important in any other country. Like it would be important in any country, but in Germany, it's especially important. Of course, there, there aren't. Germany was supposed to be the country that was resistant to was Nazi resistant, <laughs> yes. right? Like they had sort of built it up over the. We thought they'd been inoculated. Right. Yes. It turned out, <laughs> turned out and, and, and and this is absolutely terrifying to everyone I know in Germany, and to Angela Merkel and to Wolfgang Schäuble. And Schäuble is saying, we are going to need to address this threat head on. If there are going to be 97 Nazis in the German parliament, I want to be there. Because German parliament is not going to act the way the German parliament has acted until now. And, you know, where you used to have, you know, the Greens in opposition and the Reds in power or whatever, like there were certain norms that everyone adhered to. And it's pretty obvious that the AFD is not going to adhere to those norms. And we actually need this motherfucker like in the speaker's role I, doing so something. So what can he... So, and I, I want to get back to what this means for, for Europe yes. more widely because there are a lot of important implications there, both for Germany, Greece, and even France, really, at the moment. The world. The world. But... Just to stick to the the kind of domestic politics of this, what can he do as speaker to kind of um, tame the barbarians, tame the Nazis? Is there anything? I think. Well, I mean, I think the we don't we won't know until yeah. he right. takes on that job and he starts doing that job. Okay. I think it's also important though to remember that part of the reason he is being replaced is, is because they're for, yeah. reforming this new, most likely this new coalition government. So they're probably going to be giving the finance minister to the. Um, the liberal Democrats. Yeah. So my sense from reading, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Felix, is that um, they had to offer the finance ministry as a bargaining chip to create this coalition. And at that point, that gives shape. I, I will never pronounce his Schäuble. name. Schäuble. I will, in my life, I'll never pronounce it correctly. But uh, they were they they you know, he has a choice. He can either kind of 
recede from German politics and say, I've, you know, so long it's been a, a great ride, or he can go and do this new task. Right. And he's choosing to go. And-, and this is actually a big deal because if what we're going to probably see with the Liberal Democrats, the the people who will probably become the finance minister, they're still going to be fiscally hawkish, but they're much more apt to spend in terms of tax cuts, especially. Oh, are they really? Yeah. In terms of tax cuts. Now, when it comes to the rest of the Eurozone, they are much less pro-Euro and pro-Eurozone in EU than Schäuble. So that doesn't bode well for Greece. Yeah. They're like the they're uh, so from again, from because I'm not an expert in German politics, but it seems like the reason Greece needs to be quaking is because these guys are about as hardline on deficits and fiscal responsibility and all of that and they're actually um less cuddly which M- which is like so, yeah. hard to believe it is not but. it is not possible to be less cuddly than wolfgang schäuble i mean the only politician i can think of who's less cuddly than wolfgang schäuble is probably this guy norman tebbit in england but, but like, like so, that's about it so like schäuble would Okay, so one of like the the famous moments from the the Greek German standoff was uh, Greece started talking to France and Italy and started you know making noises about some sort of bigger haircut, some sort of uh, broader forgiveness program, and Germany responded or Schäuble specifically responded by saying. I think we should uh, contemplate the idea of letting Greece temporarily leave the euro. And it was like a crazy fucking plan. And everyone looked at this and went like, what is it? And it sounded really apocalyptic, but or, or it sounded like he just kind of gone off the ledge. But what a lot of people um, kind of in retrospect said was actually that was a pretty canny political move. It just kind of got everyone back into a room where it's like, listen, Germany can never abide by what you are saying. This is my way or, or the, by can never abide by the deal you guys are talking about. This is going to bring everyone into their zone of reality where we can actually negotiate another extend and pretend deal. But at least it's going to negotiate something that keeps us all together. Yeah, I would. Whereas argue- these people who are now coming in would just be like, go fuck yourselves. And that would be it. To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I would argue that that was theater on both sides, both yeah. on the Greek and the German side. Um, in- in that particular instance. But yes, it is certainly true that people often said that you would not find a more pro-EU politician than Schäuble. Yeah. So this could be a big change. This could be a big change in terms of what it means when they're negotiating with countries like Greece. But to kind of um, change the topic a little bit to, I know, Jordan's favorite topic, which is (laughs) Germany's current account surplus, (laughs) this could be good for Europe overall. Okay. I mean... Yeah, well... Wait, wait. So, wait. Let's just unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, Ger- Germany's current account surplus is bad for Europe. So, if Germany's current account surplus comes down, then that could be good for Europe. Why would the departure of Schäuble mean that the current account surplus Schäuble, would come down? Schäuble is very... He, I mean, he's, he's... I wouldn't say he's into austerity for Germany. He was... he, But he's he's... Prudent. He's he is the. I would say he's into austerity for Germany. Yeah, well, sometimes, but he was talking about tax cuts recently, right? And like there is, yeah. he he was finally kind of giving some ground. He said, "Okay, we can have like fifteen billion euros worth of tax cuts after the next election." So he was in, into the idea of you know loosening up the purse strings a little bit. Um, but the party that's coming in is actually they're they're described. I mean, they're closer to the U.S. Republican Party. Closer to. I mean, they're not really equivalent, but apparently they are much more into the idea of big tax cuts that will return more money to German pockets. So theoretically, you get more spending in Germany. That should bring down the current account surplus in Germany and thus mean more 
money flowing to the rest of the world, some of that may end up to that more imports coming into Germany, more money flowing out to the rest of the world, some of that money flowing into the rest of Europe. So that could be good. And it's also important that, again, we have a coalition government. We don't have someone with the strength of a Schäuble. And so we're going to also have the Greens most likely in this coalition, which they keep calling a Jamaica coalition, which they need to stop calling it. Oh, um, Jesus. I, I can't, what, what's wrong with calling it a Jamaica? It's a little flag? offensive to Jamaica. It's is the there, colors of is the there, Jamaican Is there flag. a single black person in the German part? No, no, there's not, of course. Um, so right now, Germany actually has a bigger fiscal surplus than they thought they were going to have. So it looks like you're going to get potentially some infrastructure spending and, or, and, and spending on education, which is what the Greens want. And you can get tax cuts, which is what the Liberal Democrats want. So again, this could be good for Germany and it could encourage them to continue to spend to bring down the current account surplus. So this could be a positive. But on the and, other hand, and, and we get to keep Angela Merkel as leader of the free world. Yes. So that's good, too. That is good. But so then let's come back to the rest of Europe, which is th- there are two things here, right? One, um, you know, there was all this talk in France and or really Macron was just talking about this idea of really creating the United States of Europe. He actually gave a big speech th- about this recently. And that seems like that's dead now. I mean, that- well, this is interesting. I would argue that I mean, I do think it probably is dead. Okay, But what I do think is interesting, when you talk about greater integration of the EU, you have to remember that the German idea of that and the French idea of that have always been very different. They use the same term. But when you're talking about Germany, they're thinking of, we want greater integration so that we can have greater control over other countries. When France talks about that, it's more with this idea that we would have a common budget, that we would have risk sharing, that we would have transfer payments. So they've always been really far apart. So I think that was always a bit of a pipe dream. But there was some movement where Merkel and Schäuble were like, okay, maybe we do need some of this because the last few years have been so bad. Maybe some of these ideas are finally conceivable. Right. That was also when Macron's popularity was 10% higher. And Good and point. also, ultimately, if Britain leaves, getting everyone else on the same page is going to be easier because Britain was always the, yes. the sand and the Vaseline. But and So finally, I guess back to Greece... Again, every one of the deals that they've had is a version of extend and pretend. There is never, there is no sustainable Greek deck deal. At some point, there will be another big renegotiation with this new German government. And they will extend and pretend again. You think, okay. Of course they will. No, it's what they're going to do every time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Awesome. Okay, let's have a numbers round. Lightning numbers round. Lightning numbers round because, yes. We're running out of recording time. Jordan, what's your number? My number is 12%, and it's going to take a little bit of explanation, but... So the Treasury Department, Donald Trump's Treasury Department, recently took down a working paper that looked into how much of the U.S. corporate income tax falls on workers and how much of it falls on shareholders, right? There's this idea that uh, some of the burden of uh, the corporate tax because it 
comes out of profits, falls on shareholders, the people who actually get dividends and such. But some of it, because it reduces investment, things like that, in new factories, also falls onto workers. So they, in effect, pay part of it. And so the Treasury Department concluded that workers end up paying about 12% of the corporate tax. The current, and this was under the Obama administration, the current Treasury Department, which is now trying to push a massive corporate tax cut, decided it was not good to have this on its website. And so they this is like the first time they've ever done this. They took down the working paper, which the Wall Street Journal found out about. And meanwhile, you know, this made it into a bigger news story. And now, so Steve Mnuchin is, is running around. This is known as the Streisand effect. This is exactly, this is now, so it's now been implemented that they're trying to hide evidence that maybe Treasury's own economists thought that their talking points were bullshit. And so now Steve Mnuchin's running around saying, oh, we think actually uh, 70% of the corporate tax falls on workers. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's that's why our corporate tax is a really a middle class tax cut. So they've managed to like, well, just Steve, ham fisted. Steve, Steve Mnuchin is also going around saying that this massive tax cut is going to reduce deficits by a trillion dollars, which basically is all to say that you just shouldn't listen to anything that Steve Mnuchin says, because he is perfectly happy just lying about everything just as a rule um anna what's your number my number is 73 mm-hmm. those are the number of days that lejean al hathlul spent um being detained in 2014 for the crime of driving in saudi arabia and now she can drive now she can drive so yes um even though i would argue that you know there's still many bigger problems in Saudi Arabia right now, especially in terms of women. I think for all the women who've been protesting this since the 90s, this really is a big deal for them. And so that's what I wanted to say. Bring it up. And my number is 3 million, which is the number of dollars that Beijing ByteDance technology is paying its top coders each year. That if you want to make really large, you know, seven-figure salaries in the technology industry, you don't need to be in Silicon Valley anymore. You can be in China. And, you know, we can argue about whether Beijing ByteDance technology is actually, like, good or bad. They seem to be built on a massive copyright violation. But they have a lot of money to pay their coders. Yeah, it's better than having to sign a non-compete. Guys, I fucked up my number. (laughs) It's 18%. (laughs) I'm just going to, Dan, we're going to keep it. I'm yeah. going to correct my number. It's 18%. The paper said 18% that he took down. Sorry, listeners. I hope you made it to the end of the segment. Jordan always, Jordan all, Jordan all just, you know, he always gets his number at the last minute. He gets his laptop out. He gets I, his you phone see, this out. is for, for, for once, I actually had this number last night. For once. <laughs> that was the mistake. And that was the mistake because it wasn't fresh yes. in my mind. I had it. And then I looked it up on my phone just now. I was like, ah, fuck. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry to all the listeners who've been complaining about my profanity, by the way, too. I, I, I tried to... <laughs> Can just... you shut the fuck up? With your... yeah. <laughs> uh, apologies to all children listening to this. Don't speak like us. Speak like, you know, Mr. Rogers. It's much better. <laughs> um, anyway, that is it for us this week. Um, thank you to Justin Kalifowitz. I can tell you, having recorded the Slate Plus Extra segment, that... It's amazing. And Dan Schrader is suffering greatly because it went on way longer than he wanted it to. And he kept on making these signs at me. Can you say, can you just wrap this up? These things are meant to be like five minutes long. And this is way over that. Um, This is a really great Slate Plus segment. So go along to slate.com slash money plus. 
Sign up for Slate Plus. Listen not only to Justin Kalefowitz on the music industry, but also to the entire episode of Kathy O'Neill just being Kathy O'Neill awesome, because that's totally worth it as well. And I need to say, also get 30% off tickets to our live show, which is coming up on November the 15th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's part of a big Brooklyn podcasting festival, which means that people will be coming and listening and buying tickets who aren't even listeners to this show. So if you want tickets, get those tickets now because they will sell out. Go to slate.com slash live, get your tickets there and get 30% off if you're a Slate Plus member. So with that, many thanks to Dan Schrader, Justin Kalifowitz and everybody else involved in this show. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. I love you.